Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Daniela Holt-Voith, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be having this discussion today, Mark. Oh, me too. This is going to be fun. Daniela is founding partner and director of design at Voith and McTavish Architects in Philadelphia holding degrees from Yale University School of Architecture and Bryn Mawr College. Daniela has dedicated her career to promoting the advancement of design for educational environments, and developing a practice that moves fluidly from planning through design. Her work at VMA for educational clients, as well as for residential and cultural commissions, has received numerous national and regional accolades. The website is beautiful. You should go check out Holt and mctavish.com is the website. Go check it out. Beautiful architecture. She's also an educator, having taught the design studio at Bryn Mawr for decades and is serving as guest lecturer at Yale, Penn, Drexel, and others. Daniela has consistently sought out opportunities to make a positive impact in her community and currently serves as president of the Institute of Classical Architecture and Art for the Philadelphia chapter, director of the Carpenters Company in Philadelphia, and as a board member of the Design Leadership Foundation, whose mission is to ensure a culture of diversity, equity, and inclusion within the fields of architecture and design. So one very busy woman, for sure, no doubt. (laughs) 
<laughs> lots yeah. of roles, lots of responsibilities. Yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. So, Daniel, I would love to hear and understand your origin story to get you to the level of leadership and success that you've had in architecture. How did this all start? When did you discover your passion for architecture and maybe even who or what inspired you to get started? Yeah. So, first of all, I'm Philadelphia, born and bred, and I'm still here. So, all right. Big plug for the great city of Philadelphia. When I was in high school, actually, I was very interested in anthropology and in fashion design. I took tailoring lessons of all things from a woman at one of the major department stores that doesn't exist anymore. So, you know, I was sewing, I was putting things together, this very three-dimensional kind of activity at the tailoring level. And I've always been very, very interested in how people relate to each other, how they interact socially, culturally, what the differences are across peoples, across the world. And my parents sent me to my room in 11th grade and said, you better decide what you want to be when you grow up. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, what pressure. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, you know, an impossible question. But uh, I took it very seriously and I dutifully went to my room and I thought about it for a while. And somehow I thought fashion design might be too frivolous an activity. So I kind of put design and people together. And to me, it came out with the answer architecture. Yeah. Did you have any influence in that connection? Well, so I grew up in a highly intellectual household. My father was a theoretical mathematician and my mother was trained as a chemist. But the sort of broader family, especially on my father's side, were interested in the arts. Margaret Mead was a personal friend of my father's mother. She did a bunch of work with her in Indonesia and in New York at the Natural History Museum as she worked as her assistant. My father's mother wrote a book that's called Art in Indonesia, but a lot of what she was interested in was the translation of living traditions in terms of dance and ritual and how that gets manifested into architecture, sculpture, and art. And there was music in the household and so on and so forth. So it was a very multicultural, interdisciplinary kind of wild mix of things. So it sounds like you were introduced to art and architecture very early. So you knew architecture and what the profession was about. And I didn't know what the profession was about at all. (laughs) But you understood there was something called an architect and that you could be one. Yeah. And it was not a linear, you know, path. Sure. I went to Bremar College. I majored in something. It was then called the Committee on the Growth and Structure of Cities. It was the first interdisciplinary major that Bremar offered, which was a combination of economics, sociology, architectural history, urban history, you know. Well, that sounds interesting. Yeah, it was headed up by a woman whose name is Barbara Miller Lee, who is an extraordinary architectural historian. And she's been basically my lifelong mentor, (laughs) intellectually at any rate. So I did that. And then I decided, well, see what it's like. I'll get a job, right? And so I got a summer job at the Architects Collaborative. So we're talking ancient history here, which is located in Cambridge. And I thought this job was the best thing. I was 19 years old. I was drawing parking lots 
for the Johns Manville World Headquarters building in Denver and other such amazing things. It's, you know, repitograph pens on Mylar. Yeah. <laughs> it was amazing. And so I took a year off of college. I thought this was so great. And then kind of by the end of that, I said, wait a minute, these people I'm working with, they've never read a book. They don't seem to know anything about the world. I better get my nice liberal arts degree. And then I took another chunk of time off and worked for an architect developer in the Philadelphia suburbs. Then I went to Yale. I took a year off in the middle of that. <laughs> and at each point that I was making decisions about what I was going to do in the future, I kind of thought, well, I could be an architect or I could write about architecture or I could teach. You know, I, it was not a narrowing of possibilities, but it, I thought of it as a branching out of possibilities. Yeah. And now I do all of that. <laughs> so when you took the, because you talk about a lot of breaks, yeah. right? That you try something, you're excited about it, and you take a break to think about it, and then you go do something else, and then you take a break. Mm-hmm. Were those breaks in order to sort of formulize your your ideas of what you want to do? Or were they out of frustration of not really knowing what you want to do? Or what were the breaks? No, certainly not out of frustration at all. I mean, at each break, well, first of all, I was very young when I got to college. I just turned 17. So taking the breaks just allowed me a little bit to catch up. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's very early. Wow. (laughs) I was young. At each break, I was working for an architect, right? So you never questioned it. You decided when you were in your room that night. I questioned it, but I kept coming back to it, right? And and that's why I said that I thought about it as this branching off possibility. So because I was was very worried about getting limited, right? And so I had to talk myself into being not limited. Yeah. Which, of course, you know, it's just a naivete of, you know, somebody in their early 20s thinking that, architecture is a limiting field. It's not, right, it's got right. so many, so many possibilities and so many yeah. great opportunities of all different shapes and sizes. So how did you get from there? So Architects Collaborative and working with other firms, how did you get from there to having your own firm? So while I was on that break in the middle of Yale, I went to work for another Yale trained architect here in Philadelphia who was renting desk space from another firm that was also renting out desk space to other single practitioners. And unbeknownst to me, the person that hired me made a deal with the guy that was sitting next to him that if he didn't have enough work for me, that the guy sitting next to him <laughs> could use my services. Huh. I had no idea. And I kept looking at the desk next to me thinking, oh, that work looks more interesting than what I'm doing. So I started moonlighting for this other guy. His name was Tony Atkin. And then the two of them got really mad at each other because I was then tired. (laughs) 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 They're fighting over me. So we had to do a little desk shuffle. But essentially, when I graduated from from Yale, I came back to Philadelphia to work with Tony Atkin. And I worked for him for three years and negotiated partnership with him. I was partners with him for about three years. We founded a firm called Atkin Voith and Associates. And then he wanted to definitely limit what I was doing and wanted me just to be doing business development. Mm. And I just didn't like that <laughs> idea. No. I was perfectly happy to, to do it, but I 
didn't think that that's the only thing I should be doing. Yeah. And you talked about that in your origin story that you wanted to do all these different things and that that was the reason you chose architecture. Exactly. So it was probably the silliest thing that I did in my course of my business career, which is just make it incredibly easy for him to say goodbye to me because he had hired a consultant to figure out how to do it and so on and so forth. And I just said, yeah, I already figured out a new partnership. Don't worry about it. And laughed. And (laughs) I should have said, you know, if you want me to leave, make me leave. And I would have ended up with the clients that I was already working with. But instead, I had to basically start over again. So that was a little, I'd say, five, six-year setback. So for all you listeners out there, don't be silly like I was. (laughs) So in your mind, you would have still left, but you would have done it in a different way. I would have been in a much better position. So I was working with a number of uh, very good schools as the primary contact and the clients loved me and what we were doing together. And because I walked away, there was no obligation for, you know, the breakup of the company to right. give me those clients. So when you walked away, you basically walked away from all of it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And we were working out of my house for a little bit. And then we moved in town a few months later because I did not like that work from home thing at all. <laughs> yeah. I needed a break. You started a new firm? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how did you meet your partner, your current partner? Oh, he was working with me at the time at Atkins Lehman Associates. And I don't think that anybody thought that our firm, our new firm was going to last for more than three months. <laughs> we founded that firm in 88, 1988, and we're still here. Yeah, it's been a little bit longer. Yeah. And I would say that Cameron McTavish, who's the McTavish part of with McTavish, wanted to retire a few years ago. So we bought him out. And so he actually hasn't been present here for about three years. Yeah. Which is sad in many respects because I love him dearly, but it was the right thing for him. Yeah. 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 So the work that you do today is very focused on educational work. You do some residential work, some museum work and Mm -hmm. institutional, but primarily educational work. What was it about educational work that drew you to that type of architecture? Okay. So first of all, I started school when I was three years old. I always loved school. The school that I went to, well, I went to preschool and then I went to to school. It is still a very small, very progressive place called Mequon, the Mequon School. Mequon is the Lenape Indian word for feather. And it's what people way back when wrote with. Right. As in pens. Yep. So it was the Lenape interpretation of William Penn. Ah, interesting. <laughs> but it was run by Don Rasmussen and his wife, Laura, who was the major developer of the new math. So we learned, I learned algebra in second grade, second and third grade. And <laughs> we played in the streams and we had self-directed projects. And, you know, it was Absolute heaven as a place to go to school. We called our teachers by their first names. I went to school in sneakers and jeans. It was incredible. Wow. And I was there until sixth grade. And then 
went to a public school, magnet public school in Philadelphia, which I also really liked. And, you know, there's all these different types of educational experiences that I've had. I ended up at a Quaker school here in Philadelphia, which I thought was absolute magic as well. So this kind of love of education is is one thing. It's also very much a philosophical belief that I have that the way to help people self-actualize is by allowing them to grow to their full potentials. And education is a huge part of that, whether it's shipbuilding or being an artist or a singer or, you know, like mathematician or a literary genius or whatever it is that you want to do. It's the good way to get there is by learning what the possibilities are and learning those, you know, getting introduced to those skills in an academic environment. So I thought, well, instead of doing casino design or healthcare, not to say those aren't important, I just felt like I wanted to turn my talents to something that I believed in so passionately. Yeah. And so it's been part of your life from the beginning. Yeah. That education and the institution of education, right? The concept of education inspired you. Yes. That it wasn't just the buildings or the fact that, you know, schools are important, right? And we need to educate our population, but sort of the psychology and the science behind education interested you. Exactly. And so, you know, as you mentioned in your nice intro of me that I like to do campus planning, I have this holistic interest, right? (laughs) in what campus environments are like, how they work, how to put a new structure or building or even just a renovation or an addition into that context in a way that makes more out of the whole. And so it's led me to investigating a lot of different architectural styles and also having a contemporary response to those environments. So it could be an historicist approach or a very contemporary approach, but that's almost the secondary issue to what type of learning once needs to happen in these buildings. What's the primary drivers behind them in terms of, we were doing a lot of work for the University of Pennsylvania's law school and the dean that I was working for there for years was really only interested in collegiality. And so, yes, they need some new classrooms, but the real question was, how do you turn the complex of buildings that made up and now makes up the law school into a place that's really an academic totality. So the corridors and there's hangout spaces and study spaces and so on and so forth that really reinforce that that notion of interaction between students, between faculty and students, between faculty and faculty. So that's where the anthropology comes in. Yes, yes. And so it's that type of question that I always want to understand first before we start trying to think of a physical manifestation of that. Yeah. So the building is really just the result from the study that you do Mm -hmm. for each project, that you have to understand the people involved, the institution, what their philosophies are. Exactly. Architecture and educational architecture is such a great palette for that, right? That I always say the architects change the world, right? Because we build the world, (laughs) right? The buildings that we design, the spaces we design, the environments we design literally impact the people who are working and living in within those spaces. Absolutely. And so we we like literally change the world with the work we do. I mean, there's this idea that great teachers can teach in tents or they're teaching around a campfire, you know, whatever. 
But the truth of the matter is if they have a really good space in which to teach, it makes their job a lot easier. Right. And it can support the style that they want to teach in and the types of activities that they want their students to engage in. And every, every institution, collegiate, undergraduate, you know, elementary level, every institution has a different culture, a slightly different mission, certainly a different place, a different level of interest in sustainability is something that our firm is very interested in and promote. We just signed the AIA 2030 agreement. So it's not a, a one size fits all yeah. response at all. Not at all. Yeah. Every project is a unique, specific solution. Yeah. When you think about education and you think about campus design and architecture, and you think about the way that children and, and young adults are being taught that the teaching is just a little tiny piece of the experience of going to a college or going to a school, right? And so the environment true. in which they learn in, right, the environment that they're surrounded by is a big piece of the experience, yeah. right? And ultimately what they come out of college or come out of university or even elementary school with, mm -hmm. right? You talked about the school that you went to as an elementary school and the impact that, that experience had on yeah. you. Right. The education was very important, but the experience that you had and it was probably bigger than the actual education. Yeah. And so the design of the buildings and the spaces that in which we were learning probably, and I'm sure educators might argue about this, probably have a bigger impact on the success of the students that come out of those institutions. Well, it's certainly true at the undergraduate level. And we do a lot of work for boarding schools, which is like a microcosm of a college, right? Because, you know, you're living there on campus 24-7 for the, you know, the academic year. And, you know, it's the residence halls, it's the dining experience, it's what the library is like to feel, and what are the gyms like. And as important as all the buildings are, really, what's the landscape like? Yeah. I was mentioning, too, just before we started, that my daughter just graduated from the University of Miami. And, you know, I'm a northerner. Right? And I have this idea about college being a pretty serious place, you know. And I went to visit her campus when she first started, and I'm looking around and saying, these <laughs> people really want their students to have fun while they're here. And it's not that architecture is that phenomenal. It's the interstitial spaces, the landscape is extraordinary. And there are fountains and palm trees and umbrellas and tables and benches that swing, you know, back and forth, there's swimming pools. So it's this holistic environment that says, we want you to be here. We want you to be happy while you're here and form those friendships and form the relationships with your faculty and your deans and so on and so forth in a way that many, many campuses, certainly in the North, do not communicate, but, you know, they may want to. So it was kind of eye-opening for me. And so I've been touting you know, outdoor furniture. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. In similar, in similar to that, or inspired by that, are there things, anything specific that, and we can maybe talk specifically university level, is there anything that has been done, this is the way it's always been done, that is now, should be done differently That in your mind? Any specific design elements or mm -hmm. ways that we're educating our students that should be different now than it's always been? Right. Well, I think the double-loaded corridor is gone. <laughs> I'll just say that. But classroom environments, you know, have 
not changed radically. I, we did a, a nice talk on the development of basically a, you know, a case study classroom, which is using business school and law schools and things like that. But you go back to the first medical school, which is actually right here in Philadelphia, had an amphitheater to learn surgery, you know, with the operating table in the middle and seats around and everybody looking and watching and interacting. So, you know, that sort of basic notion, and I was mentioning a campfire before, of people being around so that they can see each other, talk to each other, also hear somebody at the front of the room. That's really not changed. And I don't think will ever completely change. That said, our firm's probably one of the leading experts in highly integrated classrooms with technology. So those will just stick to the case study classroom for a moment. Many of the schools that we work for want to be able to record the sessions. They want to be able to record not only what the faculty is saying, but what the student-faculty interaction is or the student-student interaction is. And so the tech gets very complicated quickly in order to support that. So the cameras are voice activated and they'll turn and look look at your face or look at my face for talking. The microphones are what we call auto-gated. So if you're talking into your microphone, the person right next to you will hear a little bit through the microphone, but not much because they can hear what you're saying. But the person across the room, mic will be, you know, or speakers will be amplified much more. Yeah. That's a whole right. thing all of and of itself. So the audio is automatically adjusted based on where you are sitting in the room. Where you're sitting. And that means also that if you're filming the presentation, but there's also presentation material going on, the lighting has really controlled so that the person presenting's face is lit up enough, but not lit up so much that you can't see the material that's being presented. So all of that is very complicated. And honestly, we've also designed simultaneously immersive, synchronous classrooms where one professor can be teaching to a class in two different rooms. And the experience for the students in the remote classroom is pretty much like what it is if you were sitting in the same classroom. The professor can call on the student in the remote classroom, and that student will understand that they've been called on. Because wow. there's so many screens, and yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's kind of magic. So that's been a huge change. and. I can only imagine that that's going to become more and more and more and more sophisticated as yeah. technology increases and so on and so forth. We just finished designing a room that's totally in the round. So back to that campfire <laughs> paradigm. Yeah. So the presenter's in the middle and the screens are actually curved and up above and basically a soffit. So that anybody can see the screen that the presenter is referring to from any direction in the round. Yeah. So teaching hybrid style, teaching remotely, teaching in person, all of that is kind of here to stay. Although I personally really prefer the teaching in person yeah. aspect, but I'm having a lovely conversation with you. <laughs> well, let's take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsors for their support of this episode. Accurate data is crucial, especially in today's business environment. 
outdated and inaccurate data leads to turnarounds, delays, and rising costs. With supply chain and staffing issues, these costs and delays can multiply. That's why a resource like RCAT.com is so important. RCAT works with manufacturers to keep their data up to date and accurate and offers it to you easily, accessible, and free. Use RCAT's powerful search engine to find what you need fast and download it right there on their site without needing to pay for anything. It's free. You don't even have to register. So go try RCAT.com today. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Unlock your full potential as an architect business owner at Entree Architect Network. Since 2013, Entree Architect has been the premier membership community designed exclusively for small firm entrepreneur architects like you. Join a vibrant community of like-minded professionals and gain access to a wealth of resources, mentorship, and support. From comprehensive courses to expert guidance, Entree Architect Network equips you with the necessary tools to thrive in your career. Master business strategies, enhance your marketing techniques, and excel in project management, all while fulfilling your continuing education requirements along the way. Break free from the isolation and connect with a supportive network that understands the unique challenges that you face as an architect business owner. Whether you're a startup architect or a seasoned professional looking to make a difference, join us and we will help you elevate your career, boost your confidence, and unlock opportunities for your architecture firm. When our community of entrepreneur architects is linked and leveraged as one, there's no limit to the impact that we can have on the world. Visit EntreeArchitect.com today and become part of our thriving network. Unleash the full potential of your architecture business. Join Entree Architect Network today, the premier global business organization for small firm architects. Learn more at EntreeArchitect.com. But that's actually leads to my next question is remote is here, right? Pandemic has yeah. changed the world and it's not going back to the way it was. Right. Everything is different. So remote education is part of the way people are learning now. Are the universities doing anything to respond to that? And in terms of the experience of being on campus, in the building, being part of the university life to counteract that? desire for students to want to go remote? Well, Bryn Mawr has made it against the rules for me to teach remotely. I was really kind of liking the idea of giving lectures remotely, you know, because it works really well, actually. But, you know, like a lecture to a small group of students, it's just fine. But that college feels so strongly about the value of the human interaction that they've said, no, yeah, you can't do it. But that's more draconian yeah, and that's one response. I mean, the people who want the remote education just won't go there. They'll go somewhere else. Exactly. But so most institutions have not had that response. And so they're trying more and more to develop classrooms like the ones I just told you about. So that they right. support the faculty member and the students in whichever mode they prefer. But the other thing about it is the value add, right? You're not just in class the value add about being on campus is, you know, exchanging ideas about that Shakespeare play or right. going to see 
a concert that your friend has done or looking at an exhibit that the art students have managed to pull together are things that you're not going to do if you're at home. And so I think that makes an even, creates an even bigger demand for those schools and universities to create an environment that's really attractive. Right. And really supports person to person interaction. So, for example, we're doing a dining hall right at the moment for a boarding school, but really it's a dining hall and student center. And it's the first building that I've done like this where there is almost no distinction between the dining hall and the student center. So they're open to each other, fluidly interact. It's going to, you know, support using the sort of large space of where people eat off hours, off dining hours, so that, you know, it's overflow for the library, it's overflow for the student center activities. So it's also really flexible. And multi-use flexibility is another huge trend we're seeing. We designed an art center. There was a conversion out of a it was a maintenance shop. Wow. <laughs> we took this maintenance shop and made it into an art center. It's really sweet space. But the center of the maintenance shop had a high bay area where they did lifts, you know, put their vehicles up on lifts. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So we turned that into kind of a multi-purpose space in the middle of the building where, you know, I was thinking primarily pinup space or you know, maybe it's a music performance, you know, something because it was music and arts in the building. But <laughs> we just heard recently that they're using that space constantly for all sorts of things. So yoga, board dinners, parent orientation. Because right. they like the space. Because they like the space. Yeah. But then that means that they don't have to build three spaces to do that because it's not used all the time, right? Right. So they can schedule in. And so that kind of opportunity also makes me really happy. Yeah. Yeah. So there's so many examples of spaces that we've designed like that that have more uses than just being a classroom. I think that the value of architects and the value of design is really in high demand now, right? That with yeah. technology, with the changes that have come from the pandemic, you see it in retail, right? And retail has totally changed the way retail is, is now done, yeah. right? If it's not experience driven, retail is going away. Absolutely correct. Everything's going online. So it has to be an experience. And so yeah. I can imagine that's happening also at the educational level at universities where now there's this option that I don't have to go to your university to be educated. I could sit in my living room and get the same education, you know. But not the same experience. But not the same experience, right? So if the university's focused on design and making the spaces and the and the campus design and the buildings really impactful and the overall experience of being in university is designed, right? Not just the building, but the entire experience is designed. Exactly. Then they have something that you can't get with a remote. Absolutely. Right on the money with that one. And it's a great opportunity for architects, right? That we are the ones that can lead that, right? That can lead that revolution. Yes. Although I would say architects paired with a strong leader and a really strong vision. So... We almost always say that when we start a, a campus plan, that if they have not recently completed a strategic plan, that they should step back and do that first. Yeah. Because there's no point in thinking about the future shape of an institution without relatively recent thinking about 
all the non-physical yeah, the whole thing. issues of where they want to go. Yeah. So that takes a lot of guts to kind of say, yeah, you don't want to talk to us right now. <laughs> go back and do your homework thing. Come back. Right. But is that an opportunity for architects as well? I mean, that's not building coordination. but So sometimes we have been asked to participate in the strategic planning process. And that's very interesting. Yeah. Right. Because they really are integrated or they should be integrated. So that architects should be part of that process. Yeah. So it's nice if that can happen. It's rare, but terrific. And, you know, the way we think, we really want to hear from lots of different voices because educational institutions are complex organisms, right? There's faculty, there's huge disparity between the faculty about what they do, how they think. There's the administrators, there's the student folks who are focused on having a residential experience be great. And there's athletics, which is a whole Yeah. <laughs> institution in and of itself. For sure. I just I just <laughs> recently visited University of Tennessee and oh my goodness. Yes. It is driven by the football field. <laughs> Everything is driven by the football by the football team. Well I'm a basketball player at heart. <laughs> Married to a basketball player, mother of the basketball player. So I've spent a lot of time in gyms. So hearing from all of those points of view makes the planning and design thinking that much richer. And then the, the response can be more highly tuned to the needs of each place. Yeah. And then we think about the environment, you know, if you're in a northern climate or more southern climate, if you're out in California, schools don't need to have hallways. <laughs> it's kind right. of amazing, right? And, you know, we're always trying to still, I mean, this is not a new idea at all, but still trying to control vehicular access to the centers of campuses so keep those cars off to the perimeter right but it's amazing how difficult it is to separate people from their cars yes but once it happens when you know everybody's like oh this is so much better right exactly why, why did we not do this before? everybody wants the convenience of pulling up to their dorm room or their classroom with a car but yeah. when it's not there the campus <laughs> of life is so much better a long time ago we did campus planning for a fairly landlocked campus and the center of it had become a parking lot. And when we started our master planning process, we sent out surveys to everybody in the school community. And all of them said the number one priority was to get the cars out of the center of campus. And it took 13 years. Oh my goodness. To get that to happen. And when we did, the head of school said, this is the most transformational change that he could possibly have thought of. And it involved a religious organization and where they were going to park, pick up and drop off for kindergartners, elementary school, middle school, high school, you know, all of that. Right. And in course of doing this, I figured out that the interim head of school lived about five blocks away on a bus route, right, between his house and the school. And both he and his wife were driving to school and parking in the center of campus. So I had the temerity to show up at his office with a token for the bus. <laughs> and I said, you know, you could think about using this. <laughs> and if, by the way, you carpool, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, all we have to do is reduce the parking need by 20% and that parking lot could be empty, right? And he did not do it until he decided that he wanted to lose some weight and started working, walking to campus. <laughs> Then he was really happy. 
it's incredibly difficult to do that. And it's so, so, so important because it really changes the nature of what the landscape is like, what the outdoor spaces are like, because those spaces are classrooms too, in a sense. Yeah, for sure. I mean, educate, and we see so many changes since the pandemic has shifted the way we think and work and live. Education is one of those things that has changed forever. And architects have this opportunity to be a driver of those changes in a really positive way. Yeah, You have institutions that have been around for hundreds of years that it were designed hundreds of years ago that you don't want to lose the integrity of what those places are, but there are new ways of education and there's new ways of, of the educational experience. Mm -hmm. There are opportunities throughout the world for architects to be part of that conversation and to lead the change. Absolutely. So it's an important topic there. Young architects should be thinking about this, should be thinking about becoming part of that change, focusing on architectural. I think so. Yeah. Educational architecture. So thank you for coming by here and, and sharing your story and the yeah. work that you're doing. Before we go, I'd like to ask you my question from a business point of view. What's one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? Yeah, I mean, that's a really important question. And I think it gets back to some of the issues that we've been talking about. So during the pandemic, we were not all here. Right. We've tried to encourage people to come back into the office. For the most part, they're here. Some people have chosen to work two days from home. You know, so we're allowing a kind of hybrid environment. Yeah. But this idea of remote work is here, is also here to stay as a be fluid and comfortable with that is going to help. It's also just, it's kind of an open question here, which is if the staff that's living here in the United States is suddenly competing with somebody in India, right? There's choices to be made. Right. <laughs> is it better to work from home or is it better actually to be in the exactly. office? If it's remote, you can choose anyone right. who's going to work remotely. Exactly. But chat GPT is just the beginning. Oh, for sure. You know, there's all these platforms out there for architects where you can type in parameters and there's a 3D image that's generated for you and they're not bad. Right? Yes. So getting ahead of that, sort of learning how to harness that, harnessing, you know, different ways that people, you know, your clients can be helped to visualize their potential new environments is just has changed so radically and it's going to continue to change. So embracing the technology we have before us and getting ahead of the technology that's coming. Yeah. I'm convinced that, you know, we're going to be presenting holographic images. <laughs> you know, we're already putting on our glasses and yeah, no walking doubt. around in the space, right? No doubt that's coming. It's already here. It's already here. So staying ahead of that is really important. One of the things I think we did, you know, we saw the pandemic coming. We could hear like the warning sounds. And so... I kind of gathered everybody up together a couple of weeks before shutdown actually happened and said, okay, we got to figure out how we're going to do this. Is our server, you know, big enough? Can we, do we have enough bandwidth? Can we make sure that everybody goes home with a working computer with software on it? You know, just being prepared, right? But it was, you know, really thinking about what's coming ahead and making sure that we had the tools to do it. And as much as I like, Pen and ink and watercolor drawings and all that technology's here. And I think 
embracing it is going to be the way to be successful. Her name is Daniela Holt Voith. It's Voith and McTavish Architects is the firm. Voith and McTavish com is the website. They're on Instagram. They're on social media. You can look them up, Voith and McTavish. We'll have links to all that on the show notes. Danielle, thank you. Thank you, Mark. This has been such a pleasure. Such a pleasure. It has been a lot of fun. I've learned a lot. I haven't really focused much on educational architecture. So it's a very interesting conversation. It's something that I'm passionate about and the changes that are happening, right? I have college age kids now. So they're you know, that's something that's part of our regular life here. Yeah. And so I have one that's just recently graduated, one that's starting to look at schools and one that just decided school wasn't for him. And so I'm at all different levels right. of the educational process. So it was a very interesting conversation. I appreciate you for doing the work that you do and focusing on educational work and being part of the changes that need to be made to educate the future. So thank you for that. And thank you for coming by here and sharing your knowledge at Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you so much. I hope to meet you in person sometime. Yeah, me too. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a five-star rating, write a quick review, and share a link to this episode with a friend because that is how Entree Architect has grown to serve thousands more architects just like you. By sharing a rating, write a review, share a link to this episode with a friend. I appreciate you for that. Thank you to all our sponsors for this episode, RCAT and Entree Architect Network. Links to sponsors and all the resources we discussed today are available at the show notes for this episode and every episode found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network, the next evolution of interactive media and resources for the AEC community and beyond. You can now earn continuing education credits for listening to this podcast. Select episodes of Entree Architect Podcast are approved for AIA continuing education credit. Learn more about our new Gable Members program at gablemedia.com slash members. That's G-A-B-L media.com slash members. Thank you for listening to this episode of Entree Architect Podcast. My name is Mark Arlapage. Love, learn, and go share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders, Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that, 
then you know in your head you've rooted like oh i'm connected to these people like long term the process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges demanding meticulous planning flawless execution and unyielding resilience i kind of hate the term because it's so overly used but i think everybody knows imposter syndrome and i think it's it's so real to this day i i, I don't know if it's with everybody but with me i'm always questioning like us? Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my One that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast. It's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.